I'm Brian Scordato, and this is the Idea to Start a Podcast, a podcast that's been called, quote, easily 10 times more useful than my MBA, which probably says more about higher education than our pod, but it was a nice review. We're going to start sending the pod along with some deeper content each week. So if you're a power listener of Idea to Startup, head to gettacklebox.beehive.com or the link in the show notes. Beehive is spelled a bit wildly. So it's gettacklebox.beehive.com. On to it. Today, we're going to help you build a wildly useful startup. This might seem a bit silly because that's the whole point of starting something, right? You start a business because you notice that someone needs a tool they don't have to reach a goal they can't reach but really want to. Us entrepreneurs then build that tool. It's cut and dry. There really shouldn't be any startup that isn't useful. But usefulness is tricky. It's hard to gauge. Founders don't usually build something completely worthless. It's rare to have that clear of a flop. It's more that what they build just isn't useful enough to kickstart the engine that'll drive a great business. It doesn't make a big enough impact on first customers to make it clear why they need to overpay for it, or the transformation from before the customer had the product to after isn't exciting enough that they need to tell their friends about it. Maybe the problem just isn't important enough for them to go out and solve it in the first place. Customers carrying a disproportionate amount is oxygen to a startup. It's mandatory. Everything else is downstream of it. In the words of an old boss of mine, quote, if your first customers don't care a weird amount, you're probably already sunk. So today we'll get clarity around how useful the thing you're about to build is actually going to be. We'll build a system to create context around usefulness to see if anyone cares a quote weird amount. And most importantly, we'll help you pivot when they don't. And to build that system, we've got to start by understanding why measuring usefulness is so hard in the first place. There are two big reasons. First, because usefulness is owned by your customer, not by you. Your customer doesn't care what you think will be useful for them or what you want to be useful for them. They only care about what they think is useful. Again, this might seem obvious, but when I ask founders applying to Tacklebox, quote, why will this thing you're going to build be wildly useful to your first customers? Why are they going to drop everything and overpay for it? I get enough blank stares and confused answers to necessitate us talking through it. Sometimes when I ask founders what they're building, they answer like the I'm sure very nice person who applied to the program yesterday does. And I'm not singling him out because I get this sort of response all the time. To the question, what are you building? He replied, quote, I'd like to build a SaaS business that'll hopefully make $1 million in annual recurring revenue in the next 18 months. Sure, and I'd like a toilet made out of solid gold, but it just ain't in the cards. Founders routinely make the mistake of thinking our businesses are about us. They aren't. Your customer doesn't care that you want $1 million in annual recurring revenue or that you want a SaaS business in the first place. They own what's useful and what isn't, and what they buy, and when, and why. And we react to that reality, which can be hard. The second reason gauging usefulness is so hard is the wicked one. Usefulness is hard because the idea of not being useful is terrifying for humans, which means it's emotional, which means we're irrational about it. There's a Seinfeld bit where he talks about how on a survey of things people are afraid of, public speaking is ranked number one and death is ranked number two. The punchline is that people would rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy and you really can't beat that joke. 
But having worked with 600 or so startups at this point, I disagree with the options, at least for entrepreneurs. The thing I've found entrepreneurs are most terrified of is not being useful, not just in their startups, in their lives. Usefulness is how we measure our worth. And when we're afraid of something, we subconsciously protect ourselves from it. So entrepreneurs spend an inordinate amount of time avoiding the question, is the thing I'm making really useful for my customer? Because if the answer is no, that's a bigger deal than it might seem. It's an indictment on the founder's self-worth. As the stakes for your business get higher, as you put more effort into it, as you tell more people about it, the question gets harder to ask yourself because the wrong answer gets harder to stomach. It's really easy to dismiss this. How could people possibly work on a startup for months without explicitly asking if they're building something useful, you might ask? Well, in my experience, maybe 5% of founders seriously consider this question regularly. Max. That includes founders that have raised money from VCs who also occasionally forget to ask the question. So if you turn off the podcast here and take nothing else from it, if you routinely ask yourself, how do I know that what I'm building is wildly useful to someone or who will care a weird amount about this, you're already going to be ahead of about 95% of other founders. So for those two reasons, First, that usefulness is hard to gauge because it's judged by someone else and not us. And second, that the fear of not being useful leads us to avoid the hard, direct questions about whether what we're doing fundamentally makes sense to do or not. I've always found that the natural state for most founders and startups is building something people sort of want, something that is kind of useful, something the founder needs to put a Herculean effort into just to keep it afloat. This is a disaster. You're better than that. So today's episode will hopefully help you find an idea that's got a real shot. I've always found the best way to evaluate your own startup is to evaluate someone else's. We're much better critiquing when there are no mirrors around. So we'll start by kicking the crap out of someone else's idea to see if they really considered if what they were building was useful. And because I was already kind of mean to the guy who said he wanted to build a million dollar ARR business, the business we're going to kick the crap out of today will be mine, back from 2014. It was the most dangerous type of startup, the kind of useful one. It was called Habit Kangaroo, and we'll talk about it after a word from our friends at Build. This episode of Idea to Startup podcast is brought to you by our good friends at Build. That's B-Y-L-D-D dot com. They're a development agency that helps early stage startups build and launch scalable, revenue generating software businesses. Development from non-technical founders and teams without a tech person on them is the massive elephant in the room that just sits there judging you while you run all of your customer work and intent tests. And once you've validated your idea and you know that customers want what you've decided to build, you've got to figure out how to build it. That's where things get sticky. You probably don't have 100K to throw at a huge creative agency, and even if you did, for your first product, you probably shouldn't. You might roll the dice on Upwork, and it might work, but you'll need to project manage the whole thing. The cost will be a black box, and I cannot stress enough the might in that first sentence. For 10K and roughly a month of work, Build will get your validated product up and out. Head to build.com to talk to Ayush. That's B-Y-L-D-D.com, and tell him you heard about it through Idea to Startup. Back to it. The year was 2014. 
The top song was Happy by Pharrell, a song I absolutely hate, and the top movie was Interstellar, a movie I also didn't really like. But in general, I think I was just in a pretty bad mood. So apologies to Pharrell and Matthew McConaughey, I don't think this was about you. Quick side note, Green Lights by McConaughey is an absolutely delightful listen on Audible. Anyway, I just spun off my dating startup, Find Your Lobster, for parts, specifically to a guy who wanted to start a, quote, Jewish Tinder he was calling gefilte fishing. I was always secretly a bit skeptical that a lobster was the best logo for that specific app, but I kept my mouth shut until the check cleared. Anyway, I was recovering. It had been a few years of relentless work, fundraising, outsourced product development, finicky customers, and competing with giants. I made some good decisions and some bad ones, some of which we've talked about on the pod, others that we probably will someday. But when the whole thing was over, I was mentally and physically spent. I came out of the experience like someone who just watched the matinee showing of Interstellar on a summer day and walked out of the building into blinding sunlight and 95 degrees, confused by the nonsensical plot, just completely disoriented. I'd let everything slip the past two years. My personal life, my diet, exercise, all of the habits that I used to be so proud of. So one of my first weekends post Find Your Lobster, I decided to reset. I'd build a 30-day program for myself that would tackle the three big habits that had deteriorated, financial, diet, and exercise. In 90 days, I'd be back. I texted a good friend who also doubles as the best developer I've ever met about the program to see if he wanted to do it with me too, and he countered. Why don't we make this a business, he said. Let's make an email-based product where we drip an email each day with a short exercise or a reminder to customers to keep up the habit. They could pay for one habit or subscribe yearly to our service and build new habits as we add courses for them. Maybe we could even let other people make their own 30-day courses and put them on our platform. It could become a habit marketplace. Marketplaces scale. On the phone, we were giddy. We decided to call the service Habit Kangaroo because it'd, quote, help you jump on into a new habit. I am not proud of that. I didn't really come into my own from a pun perspective until like 2017. There was some quasi-science behind the 30 days. Apparently, that's roughly how long it takes for a new habit to stick. And we did do a bunch of customer interviews, figuring out what new habits people wanted to build and how they went about creating habits now. The interviews were encouraging. Lots of people wanted to build new habits. Lots of people wanted to get a handle on their finances. Lots of people wanted to eat better. And most people said the reason they weren't able to was consistency. They were never able to build up momentum. We thought the daily email might solve for it. We'd seen how Duolingo had grown with daily pings and thought maybe it'll work for us too. We built a website and created a sign-up list and pushed it to the corners of the internet where people really love habits. Quantified self-reddits and Quora's, Twitter, and other nerdy groups. We sent a survey to our subscribers asking what we should start with. Finance, diet, exercise. Finance won handily. So we built the program. On day one, we helped customers cancel subscription services they weren't using. Day two's email was about renegotiating credit card fees. Day three was setting up goals for loans and on and on and on. By the end of the 30 days, our customers would have reshaped their financial life, theoretically. We created the program by pulling in a bunch of existing content we liked and basically repurposing it. I wrote all the copy, adding stories and what I thought were funny anecdotes here and there. We rolled it out and charged 100 bucks for the finance habit. 
We worked on weekends building out the next courses and acquiring customers. A few people paid. We were excited. And then over the next eight months, we flailed away on weekends trying to get customers to join, pay, use, and share Habit Kangaroo. Trying to get someone, anyone, anywhere to actually care. Some people bought the course and opened the emails for a few days, then dropped off. A few paid and never even opened a single email. Of the people who went through the full 30 days, lots of people said it was well-made and well-written, but when we asked them to refer it, they didn't. When we offered other habits, they politely said, no thanks. And when we asked if they'd tell us if they could describe how they were today versus how they were when they started, they didn't respond to the email. Eventually, we closed up shop. So, what do you think? What happened? Why wasn't Habit Kangaroo useful? Could we have predicted it? Well, those are the questions. The usefulness framework. There are two questions I like to use to help our founders evaluate whether they're building something with the potential to be wildly useful or not, with the potential for customers to be weirdly excited. These directly relate to whether your business can be successful because a successful business is predicated on those early customers getting extreme value. I have not seen a business succeed without that. Let's go through the questions for Habit Kangaroo and see if anything jumps out. Question one, what is your secret? We talked last week about how startups are just people organized around a secret. If you're going to build something useful, you need a real secret because markets are efficient. It's unlikely that you'll be the first person to notice an opportunity if you don't have some reason for you being uniquely positioned to notice it while other people can't. Useful equals different. And to be different, you need some unique knowledge. We found that secrets usually fall into one of three categories, customer, acquisition, or product. Today, we'll start with customer. Maybe you've got a secret about a customer who's underserved or overlooked or has a problem no one else has noticed. The strength of your customer secret directly correlates to how hard it would be for someone else to have the same perspective and execute on it. To give the obvious example, Airbnb had a customer secret. They knew there was a group of people who were willing to stay with strangers and rent rooms to strangers. They weren't the only ones who knew the secret. Couchsurfing existed at the time, but nearly everyone else was skeptical. The companies that could move on Airbnb, hotels, were skeptical for years. The strength of the secret gave Airbnb time to build the product and the host network and create a moat. A good way to think about your secret is, what do you believe that no one else does? The second type of secret is around acquisition. If your secret is around acquisition, that means you have a reliable, scalable, free, or very cheap way to get in front of the right customers that is unique to you somehow. Maybe you know of a newsletter or Reddit thread that would take a while for other people to find or they just simply can't access. Maybe you've had a podcast for five years and you've got a built-in direct following. Again, the strength is related to how hard it'd be for someone else to leverage this channel so something like Facebook ads doesn't count. Finally, a product secret. These are trickier. Maybe you can build something no one else can, but I doubt it. What is more likely is that your product can become a moat and your secret is around how to create that moat. Here is an example. Let's say for Habit Kangaroo, we realized that the real value was in connecting people to each other to stay accountable. So the product secret then would be that network effects drive the business. 
If it's 2x or 5x or 10x better if you have friends on, maybe as we grow, we're benefiting from network effects for growth and as a product moat to make the business stickier, harder to copy, and fundamentally just better for our customers. So we could focus all of our product effort around getting your friends involved. Even that product secret is a customer secret masquerading as a product secret though. Knowing that building habits with friends is a differentiator is a customer insight and you execute on it through product. Secrets buy you time. The more unique they are, the more time you'll have to hack away at the customer alone before a competitor joins you. So for Habit Kangaroo, what was our secret? What is the core differentiator? Looking back, it's nothing. We knew people wanted to build new habits, but that's hardly unique. Our first customers were quantified self-geeks, but again, there wasn't anything unique there. Our acquisition channels were obvious or expensive. From a product perspective, we thought the 30-day email drip was clever, but it wasn't anchored in anything customer-facing. It didn't exist as a reaction to some customer behavior. We alone knew. It was just something we thought was cool. There was no secret at all. And worst of all, we weren't actively trying to learn one. We were just selling 30-day programs because we liked the idea of a marketplace. Oof. Question two, what's the river and what's the dam? The rivers and dams framework forces you to focus on specific problems and specific outcomes for specific customers. We've talked about rivers and dams before, but the general idea is to visualize your customer as if they're on a river. They're headed somewhere to their big, final, aspirational destination. With Habit Kangaroo's finance habit, we were pitching an end-of-river scene where our customer had their financial system under control. They'd trimmed spending fat, set up budgets, planned for paying back loans, and negotiated credit cards. Financials had gone from a black box to a strength. But customers don't actually reach goals like that. They don't go from zero to 60, and lots of customers might be at different stages in that journey when we pick them up. It's confusing. This is where dams come in. Along the river to some big goal, there are always smaller, immediate dams that halt progress. A good entrepreneur picks a specific dam, the type of thing that holds up a specific type of customer in the same way, and solves for it. The best dams are the ones furthest down the river, closest to the end, meaning your customer has already committed to getting to the goal, navigated some tricky obstacles, and all that's left is this unexpected thing they cannot get past but urgently want to. Thinking of your business this way forces you to focus on your customer's actual journey. It forces you to define success, what's it look like on the other side of the dam. It forces you to pick out the most painful problem with the most value on the other side of it for your customer. The more important the dam, the bigger the status leap from one side of the dam to the other, the more excited your customer will be. Here is an example. Right around the time we were working on Habit Kangaroo, a good friend of mine started a company helping people nail the GMAT, the test people take to get into business school. But he went after very specific customers. He said he could help people who could already score 700 on the test get over the hump and score 760 or above. The test is at 800, and a score of 760 or higher gives you a great shot at getting into any school you want. The dam was people getting stuck at 700 and not being able to score any higher. The end of the river was Harvard or Stanford or wherever. 
And getting people past that dam from 700 to 760 will get you credit for getting them into Harvard, even though they'd probably been navigating the MBA River for a decade. He charged thousands of dollars for his three-week course with the clear pitch that if you went from 700 to 760, your earnings potential and status would jump by hundreds of thousands of dollars. People happily overpaid. They cared an enormous amount. Just being in the class was a status symbol, so they talked about it. There was nothing more important in their life. My friend had two secrets. First, the customer. Since it was such a small group, competitors weren't disciplined enough to focus on them. It wasn't worth their time. There are a hundred times more people trying to score 650 than people who can already score 700 and are shooting for 760. The other MBA courses focused on all the rest of the people, not that top group. The second secret was the product. His approach was somewhat novel. He spent a ton of time figuring out how to build a system to help his students answer questions faster. He built a bucketing system where students identified each question as being in one of five buckets, then they had a specific way to go about solving each. This wouldn't work for anyone not in the top 1% or 2% in math skill, but it works great for those people. Once he'd chosen a customer in a dam, he figured out a product that helped that specific customer navigate it. The product secret lined up with the customer secret, and the product secret came as a result of the customer secret. Another way to think about rivers and dams is the hole model we talk about sometimes. If you've dug yourself a hole, you'll pay to get out. If you've committed to going down a river, you'll pay to navigate a dam. If you haven't, on the other hand, there's no urgency. If the river isn't already a non-negotiable, the business falls apart. Because then you're in the world of convincing people to try something they don't really care about and haven't committed to, and the price falls, and the jump is muddled, and the customer is less cohesive, and you end up on your mom's couch trying to sell Find Your Lobster to a guy who wants to start gefilte fishing. Your customer needs to be cruising down the river already with a clear dam in their way, and you've got to have a secret to find them in the first place and help them navigate it. For Habit Kangaroo, what was the dam? What was I really helping people do? Wrap your arms around your finances isn't compelling, and it isn't a real dam. There isn't a before and after. There isn't a river people can commit to. I can't show people what success looks like for that river and dam. People can't tell their friends about being successful because it's so muddled. And that's what rivers and dams comes down to making sure you can define what making your customer wildly successful would look like in five to seven words before you build a product that'll do it. For my friend, that was clear. We'll help you score 760 so you can get into Harvard. Your product will grow if you can make your first customers wildly successful. If you don't know what success looks like, you'll never grow. For Habit Kangaroo, I didn't. So, of course, there wasn't a customer that found it useful. How could they? Hire yourself. Everything in the pod today isn't rocket science. Maybe the framing of the questions are helpful, but again, it's stuff we've talked about. The big thing to take away from today's episode is the fear bit, the piece about how entrepreneurs subconsciously shy away from the hard questions, especially as the stakes rise. Because you're going to do this and it's going to sabotage you. We're all ostriches. Here is how I confront it. Every three weeks, I've got a calendar invite. 
It's for a half hour on a Friday, and the subject line is hire myself. The exercise is exactly that. I pull myself out of tackle box and I pretend that I work at a VC making a whole bunch of money. Then I make the argument as to why it'd be worth it to leave that job to join Tacklebox. I answer some questions. Why is Tacklebox wildly useful for our customers? What does it look like when we make our founders successful? What river are our customers on and what dam are we targeting? What's the status level jump for these customers? What's the secret that we know about them? What are our risks and how can we mitigate them? It is a good exercise. It usually leads to me chatting with some of our members to make sure I'm actually delivering the value I'm hoping to. It helps me understand what they'd overpay for, what the actual dam in the river is, how they describe each. I mentioned the ostrich head in the sand thing a second ago, but that's actually a myth. Ostriches don't do that. When they get frightened, they run away. When they can't run away, they flop on the ground and pretend nothing bad is happening, hoping the predator won't notice. I think that last description is more apt for founders. They're scared, so they just try to blend in and avoid the tough questions. Can this thing be useful enough to anchor a business? Is it worth my time? Just asking yourself those questions consistently will put you ahead of most people and make sure you're building something useful. And I'm going to give Interstellar another shot tonight. It's time. But that song Happy still stinks, and you can tell Pharrell I said that. This was the Idea to Startup podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. If you've got a startup idea and a full-time job, head to gettacklebox.com and apply. We'll get back to you in 72 hours and get you working on your startup idea by the weekend. Have a great week.